Thank you so much, team, for leading us. And uh, just what a blessing to come together and uh, really around the word, around song, lifting up King Jesus. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in two places. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, if you'll join me there. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, and uh, there in the New Testament. And then when you arrive in Matthew chapter 2, if you would just hold your spot there and then go to the left about seven books into the New Testament, into the, the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. And those are going to be kind of our two uh, primary texts. We'll look at some others also. And I'm just excited to continue to walk through uh, this Advent series together. Uh, and I love this kind of intentional focus around Advent because, because it really does encourage us in a time, uh, obviously very unique this year, but typically a time that is marked by uh, a, a very fast pace, by trying to get it all done, by uh, trying to wrap up maybe a semester or uh, trying to look at those Amazon wish lists, and you're just kind of like all kind of racing at times. And what this, this time does for us as a faith family is it really causes us to slow down a little bit, to take a deep breath, and to focus on the reason, Christ, to focus on Jesus. And so as we walk through this Advent series as a faith family, each week we're going to be looking at kind of one spiritual aspect of that preparation to celebrate Christ's coming. Last week, uh, we celebrated with uh, really around the hope that is in Christ. And today we are rallying and looking around the faith, our faith in Christ and how he is worthy of our complete and total trust, no matter what is going on in our worlds. And so today we lit the faith candles, also known as the Bethlehem candle. Bethlehem is probably the most famous city in the world. I mean, you probably would, would be hard pressed to find someone who hasn't somewhere along the way at some point either have sung it or been familiar with a little town of Bethlehem. Right. Uh, and, and, and so the, the reality is, is that today Bethlehem is really not so little. I, I had the opportunity of a lifetime to be able to go to Israel just a couple years ago. And I hope look forward to the opportunity to be able to lead a team from here to go to Israel. You just it just the Bible really does come alive. You never read the Bible the same. And so so kind of reading about the Bethlehem story and, and kind of like mentally, we all kind of have this idea of what it would be like or what it might be like. And so here, here's the day we're going into Bethlehem and it is a busy, busy place. There are probably somewhere around 60,000 people living in broader Bethlehem that, uh, you know, people around the streets, lots of activity going on. I mean, today uh, over there in Bethlehem, you will not find a KFC, but they do have an AFC, uh, Arabian fried chicken. There's a, a picture of it that uh, is right there. I mean, they, they don't have KFC, but right there in Bethlehem, they have AFC. And, and, and in Bethlehem, they do not have Starbucks, but they have stars and bucks. I, I'm hundred percent sure if it's a coffee place or not, but it's there. And so, so obviously, you know, as you go to Bethlehem today and you kind of see all of this, um, millions of people, millions of people go to Bethlehem making that pilgrimage. Why? Because this was the, the, the place, the town 
where Christ, clothed in flesh, came and dwelt among us, born in a manger. This is why millions of people go to Bethlehem. That it no doubt looked very different than it does today, but it was, at the time of Christ, a very little, very small, very humble, very quiet, very sleepy town, and that this would be the setting where the King of glory would be born. I love the intentionality of God and as He is creator of all, that in His grand plan, He chose the lowliest of settings to come. I love that. We're going to look a little bit more at kind of God's design and all of that, but, but Bethlehem is this place mentioned several times in Scripture. It's first introduced to us in Genesis chapter 35, verse 19, where this is the town, the town of Bethlehem, that it was mentioned that Rachel... Rachel was the favored wife of Jacob. This was the site of her burial. In Genesis 35, 19, the Bible says, So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, and it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. If you go to Bethlehem today, Jerusalem, you can go to Rachel's tomb. It's, it's there. This is the third holiest site for a Jew. Temple Mount would be the first. The Western Wall or the Wailing Wall would be the second. Rachel's tomb is this third holiest place. And you can go there today. It's the town of Bethlehem that provides us the setting of the great Old Testament book of Ruth. And so we read about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, that it was in Bethlehem that this book took place. It's also the town where the great grandson of Ruth and Boaz was born. His name was David also known as King David, that this is the King David in Scripture that we read about that ruled Israel from Bethlehem. The story, uh, as, as King Saul, the first king, was rejected by God, Samuel was called to go and anoint another that would be king, that would follow King Saul. Where did he go? He went to Bethlehem, and he went to Jesse's house. And Jesse's house, one by one, brings the boys. And one by one, the prophet is like, no, nope, that's not him. Not him. Not him. Is there another? And there was still the youngest, the least, right? The least of the family was out tending sheep. And here comes David. And this is going to be the next king. I love how in God's design that he always uses the small to, to like kind of blow our minds, right? Why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? Why little Bethlehem? Why David? Why the youngest? Why even when David slays Goliath? Why a slingshot, not a ginormous sword? Because God uses and works in such a way that he alone can get the glory. That if it was a big famous city, that the city would be like, hey, look at us. Big neon lights, right? We are the birthplace of the king of glory right here. Or the innkeeper, right? The innkeeper, innkeeper sent up and say, he was born in my inn, my inn. But what does the Bible tell us? He was rejected everywhere he went. He was born in a feeding trough, likely in a cave in the side of a mountain. That, that God uses these small, unlikely ways to display his glory in ways that only he can get 
I love that. In, uh, in January, the first week of January, on a Wednesday night, January the 6th, right inside here, uh, you saw it in the announcement video, but we're going to be having what we're calling a D-group workshop. And, and really what the heart is, is that for every adult that can, that would be in this room, and we're going to talk about a biblical framework about what it looks like to be a disciple and to make disciples. And so, so as we walk through that, our pastoral staff has been meeting each week as a D group and we're reading scripture, we're memorizing scripture, we're holding each other accountable. But one of our readings recently was in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, 27 through 29. Here's what the word says. It says, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is God's design is that he works in ways that only he can get the glory this is why Bethlehem. So Bethlehem, the setting of many important stories, important sites, the Old Testament, but now Bethlehem in the New Testament. Micah chapter 5, I mentioned that reading uh, in, in, our, in our opening worship time. This prophet, this prophecy by the prophet, Micah was uh, given 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he says this in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, Bethlehem, it mentioned as Ephrathah, Ephrathah, this is the ancient name for Bethlehem. Why? Because there's actually two Bethlehems. There's two Bethlehems over there. Just like I, I did a little Google search, just a little information in case you might want to know there are eight other olive branches in america and so 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 it's important like if, if somebody has no context for where we're at and somebody says hey let's go to olive branch well there's eight places you could go right well in bethlehem this is why the prophecy is so amazing is because it's so specific it's like no this is bethlehem ephathra because bethlehem the the of judea is six miles south of jerusalem but there's another Bethlehem that's six miles north of Nazareth. And so the biblical prophecy hundreds of years before says this will be the Bethlehem. And from this Bethlehem, the ruler will be born and he will be one who is eternally existent, says from the ancient of days. Very important. Very important. Throughout scripture, we see God is eternally existent, revealing himself in three persons. God, the father, God, the son. God, the Holy Spirit in John chapter one, verses one through three, the Bible says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made a little further in the gospel of John, John, the Baptist, the forerunner, he sees Christ coming. And here's what he says in John chapter one, verse 29 and 30. He says the next day. He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This is important because John the Baptist was born before the incarnation of Christ. 
He is the forerunner of Christ, the one that was prophesied about. And here's John the Baptist saying, here's the one who is greater. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the one who was before me. He's before all. He's the eternally existent God. Paul in Colossians 1, we walk through the letter of Colossians. Together as a faith family and just such a rich description of who Christ is. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through 18 says that he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And I love this. What's our purpose? For him. We're created through him. We're created for him. And he, Christ, is before all things and in him All things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see the specific prophecy from the prophet Micah hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, I want us to fast forward 700 years. Fast forward to the birth of Christ. And it's important to know, that at the arrival of the incarnation of Jesus, something very important has taken place. The Old Testament scriptures have been set. The Old Testament scriptures have been set. They have been set. The canon was set. And so you had Jews who had committed themselves to reading the Old Testament, memorizing the Old Testament, saturating their hearts and their minds with the Old Testament. They are anxiously awaiting and looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And so they are looking, looking, praying, praying, studying, studying. They are soaked in the scriptures. This was a time of an all-time high of spiritual hunger. And it was at this point of spiritual hunger with all of those who had devoted themselves to knowing, reading, meditating on the Old Testament scriptures that this is the day that we read Matthew chapter 2. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, again, specific, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So here are the wise men. They, they travel uh, likely from present day Iran is where they would have likely been traveling hundreds of miles and they make their way, and, and, and there is a, a, a Christmas song that says, We Three Kings. They, they were not kings, they were magi, they, were, they anointed kings, they were like political rulers. In the book of Daniel, you would have seen magi in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And so you would have seen these guys coming in, and in verse 1 again says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Hold on to that one. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. King Herod was troubled. These magi make their way hundreds of miles and they come into Herod's court here's something to to keep in mind about Herod it Herod was had to be one of the most insecure and paranoid leaders and rulers that's ever been that 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 for him he he murdered one of his wives he murdered two of his children 
He murdered his relatives. Why? Because he felt they were all a threat to his rule. And so he had them, he had them killed. He had them murdered. And so obviously these magi did not understand who they were talking to because when they come before King Herod, they say, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? And, and so for him, here's what's also interesting is Caesar Augustus would have been the king of kings at that point. He was the ruler of Rome. And over the Roman world. And so Caesar Augustus, king of kings, and the, the, the Roman government would have like acknowledged that King Herod was, guess what? King of the Jews. And so here the Magi come. And to an insecure, paranoid leader, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And in his off-the-rails insecurity, verse 4 says that he... King Herod and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. At that time, Christ, Christ, not the last name of Jesus, Christ was a title referred to the Messiah. So even up to this point, that term Christ had been associated with the Messiah, the Messiah that would come. That in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, the Bible says he's quoting the prophet Isaiah in Luke 4, 18 through 20. The Bible says, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. This is significant. He's anointed me. He's the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the long awaited Messiah. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. And he was quoting Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 60 there, 61. And, and then he says this in verse 20 of Luke 4. He says, he rolled up the scroll. Jesus rolls up the scroll of Isaiah. He gives it back to the attendant and he sits down. Verse 21 says, or excuse me, verse 20 says, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The long-awaited Messiah, the one that you've been hoping for, the one you've been looking for, the rescuer, the Messiah, it's fulfilled right before your eyes. I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. And what happens? They get mad. They get angry. They push him out of the synagogue, Bible says, to the brow of the hill, and they're going to try to kill him. They're going to try to kill him. And, and, and I love Luke 4, verse 30, the Bible says, but passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> I love that because the hour had not come. Christ is sovereign. He's got a plan. He's got a design. Everything's working together for his will and his glory. And, and they're trying to kill him. And the Bible says he just passes through. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And so as we go back to Matthew chapter 2, this is significant that Herod is saying, where is the Christ to be born? And so he gathers the scribes and he gathers the high priest. The Bible says he gathers all of them. Who knows how many were there? And he brings them in. And here's what he says in verse 5. They told him, it, it, it's almost like it was instant, but they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Specific. It's Bethlehem of Judea, the, Jew, the Bethlehem that is six miles from here, six miles south. 
For so it is written by the prophet. And here they, they quote the prophet Micah that we just read. 700 years earlier said, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. To which I would say, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. You got to remind, this is, this is a man who is paranoid. This is a insecure. This is, yeah, you tell me where he is. This is the same ruler, by the way, that had every child age two and under murdered. And so here he is at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And so here it is. From eternity past, all along the way, God has been working while we wait. Working while we wait. Working while we wait, and it culminates in the incarnation of Christ in Bethlehem, and not just any Bethlehem, Bethlehem e Fathra. So how does Bethlehem encourage our faith? How does it encourage our faith? And I would say, for one, is that when God says He's going to do something, He does it. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's worthy of our faith. And it doesn't just happen randomly it happens specifically and so i trust him i have faith in his plan i have faith in his rule that all through scripture you see that god is working and he's working and he's preparing and he's making ready his first advent he's arranging events and circumstances in a way that he will get glory and he will get honor and he will receive worship and he will be glorified I mean, if we back up from the Christmas story for a few moments, think of these pieces that just so happened to fall into place. The first would be that it just so happened that a census would take place. It just so happened that a census was to take place. And Caesar Augustus, the king of kings at that time of Roman rule, Luke 2 tells us, Luke 2 verse 1 says, In those days a decree went out from the Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so it just so happened at this moment in history that Galatians 4 tells us is the fullness of time that King Caesar says, You know what? I want to have a, I want to have a census. And so he makes his rule and the word goes out. And it just so happened that at that same time of this called census, that there is a man named Joseph and there's a young lady named Mary. They're betrothed to be married, engaged to be married. And it just so happened that she is pregnant with the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And it just so happens that she is from Nazareth, and it just so happens that she's in her third trimester. And so it just so happens that events orchestrated in such a way lead them to go to Bethlehem, not six miles north, 
but the one about 106 miles south. Jerusalem, about 100 miles. Bethlehem, Ephathra, about six miles south. And they make their 100-mile trek in the third trimester to the city of Bethlehem so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. All of this happening, God orchestrating these events in such a way that the Christ would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem, the one who would rule not just Israel, but would rule the entire world, the one who would shepherd his people. So what does this mean? Again, it means we can trust God. I saw somebody make, make a statement, uh, a pastor say, 2020 has not been a difficult year for God. And, it, and that is not said to take lightly what we're going through because this has been a wearying season for many, been a very difficult season, but rather that statement is actually the very thing that encourages us. Why? Because God is omnipotent, because God is ruler, because God is over all things. We can trust him. He works all things, the Bible says, for the good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That all things means exactly what it says, all things. He uses it all. He uses it all. He's faithful. So I can trust him in times of plenty. I can trust him in times of, of scarcity. That means I can trust him in times of gain. I can trust him in times of great loss. I can trust him in times of financial distress. I can trust him in times of relational stress. I can trust him in time in a hospital room. I can trust him in my living room. I can trust him. He is worthy because he's in control. He's the omnipotent God. And so we can rest in him because of Bethlehem. Bethlehem teaches us again that we can trust him with everything. I brought, actually, I didn't bring it. I borrowed it. An arrow, an arrow. Uh, so I think, Jolie, we had to get this approved by security before I brought it up here. All right, bringing a weapon to church here. So, so here we go. We got an arrow. And, and so a mentor of mine once taught me about uh, what the, the importance of, of arrow prayers, he called it. Arrow prayers. And so, so obviously the Bible teaches prayer life is that intimate communion with the Father. I believe essential to a believer is that there's that time in the day where you read God's word and you pray and you, you build into that relationship, that love relationship with God. But then the, the, I've also heard, you know, that the teaching of, of Paul tells us to pray continuously. And so I've heard it described almost as like an ongoing text thread through the day that you never quite put a period on. You just kind of keep it going through the day and kind of what does that look like? Acknowledging his presence every step of the way. And so what my mentor taught me was, Jared, do you, do you know what arrow prayers are? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? He said, he said, Jared, he said, most people, most people, by most people, he was talking to me. He's like, most people live in this area of concern. In other words, there's these things that all of us, I would say if we took a poll today, probably 100% of us are concerned about something right now. And he said, Jared, he's like, he's like a lot of us spend so much time living in the land of concern that we have no power to do anything about. He said, but rather that by God's grace, God's wisdom, God's strength, that we would not spend our time in the realm of concern, but we would focus on what God has entrusted us influence over. And that by his grace and his strength, focus on those things. 
And when the tug and the pull goes to the things that you're concerned about and that you want to spend time in and live there, he said, shoot up an arrow prayer. And so I, I'm, not a, I'm not a bow hunter, although I'm kind of inspired right now. Uh, but, but, but like, you know, this idea that a quiver, you got, you got these arrows. And it's like at any point when you're ready, what? You pull the arrow out and you fire it off. And so that's the picture is that when we come into these, these moments where we, have the, we don't have the power to change a circumstance, but what we can do in that moment is we can fire up an arrow prayer straight because of the blood of Jesus to the throne room of God where Hebrews teaches us that we can find grace and help in time of need. And that it's in those moments that we fire off those arrow prayers. And what we do in that is we are reminded that God is in control. And we are reminded that He's trustworthy. And we are reminded when things are unraveling and we don't have the, 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 the power to fix it, we can trust Him because of Bethlehem. Because he's the God of the universe, because he can work all things together for good. And so in those moments, believer, that we would be encouraged as we go, we find ourselves living in this world of things we can't control. Fire in faith these arrows of prayer to our king of kings and rest, rest, fire the arrows and rest. Focus on what God has given you, grace, strength, energy and wisdom to do and rest. Struggle, struggle, fire that arrow, prayer arrows, right? Rest, rest, rest. How can we rest? How can we lay down our head at night when, when, when things are out of our control and so broken? It's because we rest that God is on his throne and he's faithful. And so to the believer, be encouraged, be encouraged. We can rest, we can rest. He's in control. We do everything by his grace and strength we know to do area of influence with all those other things that we have no power fire off those arrows and trust him and find grace and help in time of need one other thought that is in this text that i think is profound is that i think it's it's crazy that the bible says that among those that herod called were chief priests and scribes so so when when the Christ was to be born, they're here to worship the king of the Jews. What do they do? What does he do? He calls in all the chief priests and the scribes. In other words, the super scholars of the Old Testament, he calls them all in and he asks them, where is this Christ to be born? And, and these are people that would have saturated their minds, their hearts with the Old Testament. They would have scripture memory, no doubt. Micah was on the front of their hearts. They're looking, they're longing, they're waiting for the Messiah. And yet, and yet, think about this. They wouldn't go six miles to see if it were true. <laughs> they wouldn't go six miles they have, in essence, been waiting their entire life for the Messiah, for the rescuer, for God to rescue us from our sin. They have been waiting and watching, waiting and watching all the while behind the scenes. God is working. God is working. And in the fullness of time, six miles from the spot, the son of God has been born and it all was up here and it never made it to here. It was all up here. It's been said, don't know who said it, but it's a great quote. It's been said, the longest journey you will ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. 
Because the challenge is this, is that you and I, we can have all the knowledge in the world and we could ace a Sunday school quiz or even quote scripture, but if it has never made it from here to our hearts, and we have never had that time and that place where we have surrendered our lives to King Jesus, repented of our sin, and placed our faith and trust in Him and Him alone, then we have missed it just as those chief priests and scribes did, all of them. They wouldn't go six miles down the road. And so the encouragement is this. is that, are you here today? And maybe you know a lot about the Bible. Maybe you know very little bit about this. This isn't a, a Bible trivia quiz, but, but here's what I want to say. What we know from Scripture is that for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The whole Bible is about one person, Jesus. It's about two events, His first coming and His second coming. His first advent, His second advent. We look back and we celebrate the first coming and we know He is coming again. And so the encouragement through Scripture is that has that information transitioned from your head to your heart? And have you been what the Bible calls born again? Have you come to that time and that place in your life where you've acknowledged your sin, your need for forgiveness, you repent of that sin. In other words, you have a change of mind about that sin, a change of mind about the direction, and you repent and you turn to Christ and you yield and surrender your life to Him. And here it is, as Lord, as Lord. Not one of Lords in your life, Lord of your life. King of kings and Lord of lords. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be, not you could be. You are saved. And so, is there someone here today that potentially it's all been here and it has never made the long journey 18 inches to your heart where you firmly place your faith and trust in Christ because that's what Bethlehem teaches us. It's one of the lessons is that he's trustworthy and he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy for all of it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for Bethlehem. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for the prophecies. Thank you for the fulfilled prophecies. God, all the while through the Old Testament and even that 400 years of silence from that last book, Malachi, to Matthew, that God, you weren't taking a break. You were working. You were working. You were working while we were waiting. You were working, orchestrating events, circumstances in such a way that as Galatians 4 tells us, in the fullness of time, that you, Christ, would be clothed in flesh dwell among us, live a perfect life we could never live and be, and be crucified on a cross for our sin, a debt that we deserve to pay. You are placed in the tomb and you resurrected from the dead and you are, you are seated at the right hand of the Father. We celebrate your first coming and we look forward to your second coming. And so Bethlehem reminds us that as a believer, we can trust as a believer, we can have a rock-solid faith 
that you are in control, that you are omnipotent, that you are faithful, that you're trustworthy. And God, may we find ourselves firing arrow prayers to all those things we have no control to fix, and we rest, and we rest, and we rest. By your grace, strength, wisdom, we do everything you show us to do, and we rest, because there is rest in you. There's a rest in relationship with you. So God, I just pray rest for your people. I pray for rest. And I pray for anybody here who doesn't have a relationship with you that this, this scripture needs to move from information to transformation, that it would make the 18-inch journey to their heart and they would receive you as king of their lives. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We're gonna have a time of, of response. And so in this time, just encouraging you, we will have pastors who are here who would love the opportunity to pray for you. If you're here, you're like, I just need somebody to pray for me. This is going on, this struggle. Can you pray? Can you, can you, can you pray over our family? Whatever it might be, we'd love to do that. The altar, if you would desire to come and pray, come and pray. If even there at your seat, you just need to start firing off arrow prayers, then fire away, fire away. He's trustworthy, he's trustworthy. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus, then I pray today that you would receive Christ. So if you're here, you're like, I want to be saved. I would encourage you to come. Our pastors would love the opportunity to encourage you, pray with you, share scripture with you. But there's no greater day than today to give your heart to Jesus. Let's give, them, give, let's give the Lord our hearts this morning in response to him.